Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. Today, Cody Townsend finally is back on to review the news with me. We missed last month. That was entirely Cody's fault. But the guy's been up to some stuff, so we're going to cut him some slack. And not only that, we're actually going to talk quite a bit about exactly what Cody has been up to and why he hasn't been available to record this reviewing the news segment. So yeah, Cody gives us quite a good update on what's been going on with the 50 projects and some of the successes and challenges of the project. So that's where we kick things off. And then we start talking about One really stupid story, then one really, I think, inspiring story. We have a head-scratcher of a story, and yeah, so we've got a number of different topics, and of course a few tangents, and that's before we get into what we've been reading and watching, or not watching as the case may be. So yeah, another good episode, chock full of all kinds of different topics here. So I think you're going to dig it. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Mountain Flow Echo Wax. Now, there's probably a number of you who have begun to put your skis away for the season. Now, that's not Cody and that's not me. I'm actually leaving for Iceland. By the time you hear this, I might be in Iceland. So we're keeping this skiing thing still going and Cody is too, and you're going to hear about that in a minute. But for many other people, it's time to put the skis away, and you're breaking out your mountain bike, or your running shoes, or maybe your golf clubs. And so before you put those skis away, you should check out Mountain Flow's base prep wax, and you can also check out at mountainflow.com their tutorial on off-season ski storage. I'm actually going to be bringing with me some of Mountain Flow's Quick Wax. Since this late into the season, it is always really hard to know what kind of snow you're going to find. And I don't really like it if the snow gets too sticky and your skis start grabbing in that snow and you kind of get that feeling of like you're going over the handlebars. So I'm going to be packing their Quick Wax all the way to Iceland, but... If you're hanging things up, check out that tutorial and all of their other products at mountainflow.com. And now, let's review some news and catch up with Cody Townsend. Here we go. All right, Cody Townsend, it's you again. It's been a minute. I barely recognize you. No, you you I'm look back. you look exactly yeah, the same. I, I did shave yesterday a little bit, so my mustache is a little cleaner, feeling a little more refreshed. Uh, I was not very refreshed last week, so feeling better. Mm. Yeah, man. Well, I'm sort of disappointed, as I know some other people are, that we kind of missed a month on this. But I'm really happy that you've been real productive. You have a good reason why we, you know, haven't reviewed the news in a minute. Things kind of lined up a bit for you, and I want you to tell us about what you've been up to. 
Yeah. So as of last time, I think I did this. I was in Pemberton, BC. I'm still in Pemberton, BC. I've been up here pretty much for the winter with my family. They actually just left to head back to Tahoe. I'm sticking around to try and tick off some more lines. And um, there's a few things with this project that have been difficult this year. One, as you get closer and closer to the end, there's more patience required. And then there's also just the damn straight luck that you need when it comes to weather. So for the last few years, I haven't been able to get into Canada. So the majority of the lines I have left are in Canada and then north up in Alaska because they're really difficult ones. Um, so with that, if Canada doesn't have a good year this year. Like I'm shit out of luck. Like I got, I got no episodes. I'm just like, ah, I didn't do anything this year. So as of March, when I was here and just watching the weather on a daily basis, it was just like nonstop raining every day. There's no high pressures, no nothing, avi conditions, just like really, really bad. I was stressed out of my mind. Like I just like couldn't sleep. I'm literally updating weather every five minutes, trying to figure any hole out. And then trying to drive out to Revelstoke to where four of the lines exist and where that I need. And I was sitting there, I think the last time I told you guys, I have like, I have eight lines to do in eight weeks. And one of them is a 10 day traverse. Um, so as I sat and I sat and I sat, and then it's just started to kind of turn around and we started seeing more and more holes and then these abnormally warm temperatures that plagued all of March just turned around and it went like full Arctic cold up here. And all of a sudden we had mini high pressures in between snow and like ended up being very successful and honestly getting some of the best conditions of the project. I have yet to ski one of the lines that hasn't been in PAL. Like there, there's no, there's no chipping your way down the sickle this year, like huge lines, like possibly the best line of the project. And I got in thigh, or not thigh, but like shin to knee deep pow. Um, one of the biggest faces, one of the burliest faces. So it's definitely paid off. It hasn't been easy. Um, I would say there was some early struggles, especially when it came to fitness, man. Uh, one thing I learned about the Selkirks, uh, where a lot of the lines are left, are the one, the mountains are gigantic. And then two, everyone there is an absolute crusher and they just fly up mountains. <laughs> and the first couple of days out <laughs> with guys like Greg, Greg Hill, Chris Rubens, mm. uh, Mally Noyes, who's a Solomon athlete. She was in town. I was just getting my ass handed to me. I was like, oh my God, I thought I was in shape. I'm not at all. Um, but then it all started coming around and we started getting really, really lucky. Um, we've pretty much got everything done. There's one line still left, um, in that general zone. And then I'm going to be working on a few more lines up in this area for the next couple of weeks. So, so yeah, it's kind of things have turned around. That's why I had like no time. I mean, I was like, we, we just got done with a bugs to Rogers traverse, um, did it in eight days and it's like, get flown out of the mountains and I'm like landing and jumping in my car and driving home to see family. So the moment I'm home, it's just like, got to spend some time with the family. So haven't had the time to review the news as much. Alas. Well, again, sounds like it's all for a good cause. So, you know, we, we forgive you is what I want to say. We forgive you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So it's funny. We were, we, (laughs) we kind of always have this document going and we were like, well, I wanted to catch up with what you've been up to. And you just wrote weather, period, weather, period, weather, oh, fuck, period. Yeah. 
Well, this almost goes, this almost <laughs> steals my like, uh, my end air bit when we do the thing about what have you been watching? Cause it's like literally all I've been uh-huh. watching is the weather. Like I was thinking about it. So we we're out on the, like this traverse for eight days. It's you're in the wild, you're out of communication, you're huffing 50 pound packs for 93 miles was our total walking. And it's like 33,000 vert. And you really have no communication with the world. And like, we're still, we, you have to get flown out of the mountains. We're getting flown down. And I'm like checking in the heli first bit of service. The first thing I pull up is like weather apps. And just, I'm like, what's the weather? Cause you all, you just have to be like so game on this, this project. And if I feel like I miss one window, it just, ah, it's, it's so crushing. So it was a, yeah, it was a tough winter and then it ended up being pretty good. Um, I will say that it was still wild. Like we tried this one line with Greg Hill and, um, this is middle of April and we were touring in like 800 fill Himalayan style downs with Arctic mitts on. Like it was like minus 35 while we were, we were touring, like literally hiking for this line. And we're getting, we got up like 2000 feet below the top of it. And we're just like, it's actually, we got, we turned around for other reasons, but one of those was just like, dude, we're going to be doing this really gnarly technical ridge walk and like really exposed ridge line. And like, it's like minus 30 out. If anything happens, we're in a really bad position. So, uh, uh, it's definitely been, it's just been a weird, weird winter. Um, I mean, the traverse, we saw every weather thrown our way. It was, I had to do the most annoying thing I think I've ever done skiing while on this traverse where the last day it was so hot. We're on this high glacier. It's like 3000 meters, like, so nine, 9,500 feet. So high. And it, the, the night before it's snowing, um, and we wake up and we're like traversing, going across this glacier and it's like beautiful and cold. And all of a sudden it's like literally like 65, 70 degrees on this glacier. And you're just like stripping down. I'm like, oh my God, it's way too hot. So I like take off my boots on the glacier, which uh, granted my boots are soaking wet. My socks are soaking wet. I I learned you like, I, I gave up when it came to trying to dry out your boots. Like quite often you'll sleep with your liners in your sleeping bag to keep them warm. At a point I realized that was just completely useless. And so I just hang them up outside at night and just like let them out and just they're frozen. And at least when they're frozen, they weren't wet for the first few seconds. And then you get into them and then your feet warm them up and then they oh get my wet. God. Um, so getting out of your boots because you're, they're soaking wet, like you're swimming in your ski boots is hard enough. And then I'm like, get out. I strip off my long johns to my underwear and I'm like, oh, that feels so good. We hike for another two hours. All of a sudden it's like raging storm comes in. It is freezing cold again. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm not going to survive out here with just freaking underwear on. We still have like 15K of hiking to go. I was like, geez. So on the glacier in a snowstorm, took off all my clothes, put long johns back on. I was like, that was one of the more annoying things I think I've ever done. <laughs> like <laughs> taking your long johns off and putting them back on in the same day in ski boots while on day eight of a major ski traverse. Dude. So yeah. <laughs> oh, it was, yeah. No, it was the the traverse. I, I kind of called it the like drink concrete and toughen the fuck up traverse because like all our bags were soaking wet by day three. You like by day five, I was sleeping in all my Gore-Tex because my bag was so wet that I realized it was getting me wet. And then I would get really cold. Like I'd just wake up at four in the morning, just shivering. And I was like, oh, I got to sleep in my Gore-Tex with all my puffies on. I was just 
eventually just sleeping in every layer I had and just like getting into a wet, sopping wet sleeping bag. And you're like, oh, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> Sounds like a great time. It was actually, it was pretty fun. It was a, it was a true type two adventure and skiing was awful. It was in a really not that great. We did it. Uh, we did it in a special way that made for worse skiing, but made for more likelihood of completion and more safety. Um, uh, because it was getting so warm and there's such big hazards. Like, it's not like, I feel like it's got a reputation as this like, oh, do the traverse when you're like 60. It's like, no, that thing is gnarly and it's hard and it takes every ounce of skill. It really tests your decision-making in the mountains, your physical abilities, your camping abilities. You're like able to you know you're like well we don't have any food we get better get to our cash today and you're like well the whole entire glacier we're about to traverse is in a whiteout you're like well we're it's game over if we don't get to that cash so how do we get to that cash so it's really it's really interesting i've learned that uh canadian ski guides um for their accreditation and tests they make them do traverses um so go from point a to point b and i think it's because it's such a good test of your skills to me what i really learned from it was like so far this project i've hated traverses they've all been one day things the multi-day traverse if you are interested in learn like learning if you're interested in upping your knowledge if you're in- interested in testing your skills there's no better way to test your skills than do a multi-day multi-week traverse like it really puts you at odds because like well, we say like we do a really good job in the mountains of avoiding hazards. So like you read the Abbey forecast when you go in the Crested Butte backcountry, it's like high, high northeast aspects are considerable. You're like, cool, we're staying off high northeast aspects today. Well, when you're out on a traverse, one, you're not getting Abbey reports. Two, you still have to get to from point A to point B. So how are you going to do that? And you have to mitigate hazard and manage hazard while out there because you can't avoid it. And it's a really interesting process, I think. I think it really tests your skills. And sometimes you get to sleep in Gore-Tex. Yeah, totally. You get to put on soaking wet ski boots every day for multi-days. Okay, another very little bit cryptic yet compelling note you wrote in our doc. Pressure to deliver episodes, not lines. Discuss. Well, so... As this 50 project has grown, you know, there is this feeling of like wanting to deliver episodes. And when I was sitting there in March, just stressed out of my mind and thinking like, dude, we're, we might be able to get one or two lines this year. If this year doesn't work out, what do I do? And it kind of dawned on me and this almost goes to some of my original thoughts, but I've gotten so deep into this process. You forget about it, that there's a pressure to deliver episodes to show people what you're up to, but there's not a pressure to actually ski the lines. And what I realized at one point was actually like, I can't just come back at the fall and be like, Hey, it was a bad year. Here's no episodes or here's one episodes. Sorry. And like bad winter. I have to like show people why we're not able to do this. And there's probably a lot of interest in why you're not able to do it. Cause quite often I think we as backcountry skiers, we're not going out there to ski these major objectives unless we think there's a 90% chance it's going to happen. And then you might turn around in the moment, but often like you're just not even going. So I was like, well, 
Why don't we show people why we're not going? Why don't we just go out there on a daily basis and show like, hey, this is the weather. This is why we can't even see the line. We have to drop down over this other face. And this train trap is super gnarly. And until we get this sort of stability, we're not dropping in there. And so it was a big relief off my shoulders. I felt like to actually think I'm like, wait, no, I just have a pressure to deliver episodes, not not lines. I don't have to complete the lines. The lines, the, I ski them when I feel like they're safe, when I feel like they're good. Um, so it was a, yeah, it was just this dawning. And then it was kind of very almost like karmically related. As soon as I thought that everything started working and we, we literally went out to go shoot an episode. I was like, all right, we're not going to do this line this year. Went out to shoot an episode. We started the process of showing why we're not skiing this line, getting people familiar with it. And then all of a sudden, boom, we had a window. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, one of those things. Um, so yeah, that's the goal. I think from here on out, um, I think depends on what we finish from here, but a lot of the pro we're probably going to show more and more and more of the process and more of what we're doing behind the scenes to try to get these lines and wait for them and see if they're going to come in. And, you know, it could be even some of the training stuff of getting ready for some of the big lines, because, you know, as it's getting closer, as I get into, you know, the, the single digits of lines left, you know, that's where it's going to take years potentially to tick off one line. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that was my big realization this year. It's a little funny to me that you are framing it in terms of like your big realization this year, because we've actually had a number of people like on this very podcast thinking of Chris Davenport and a recent conversation I had had with Sander Hadley. And both of them were talking about, you know, one of the cool things about the 50 Project is that it does show so much of the behind the scenes stuff, right? And certainly as a backcountry community, we at least talk about this a good bit. Like part of backcountry skiing is walking away. Part of backcountry, part of it, not, it's not like not doing it. Like part of it is when you make the decision, like it's not good. We don't have a green light. So I think, you know, one, it's interesting to hear you say that that was your realization since I feel like that has been, I think for a lot of people, one of the coolest elements that has been going on um, that you're like, hi kids, we would love to get on this line and we can't. And we're going to talk a bit about why I think that's a super valuable educational component, but I guess maybe your point is the pressure, the actual pressure part. And it's just, it's shifting mentalities because again, like, yeah, we're going to be talking about safety. We're going to be talking about turning around if we have to, but it's still like we had a 90, we're not going to go out there unless we have a 90% chance. And yeah, we might turn around, but like showing people why we're not even remotely stepping foot out there, I think is important too. And so that's like, it's just a level of depth that, um, you know, I haven't quite thought about when it comes to it because we're, you know, usually bring along for the, the actual attempt. And if we turn around, we turn around, but, um, you know, why, why we're not even making attempts is a different level of storytelling that I hadn't really considered. Cause you get deep in this, man. You get deep in the, the thoughts, the, the way you're doing stuff. It's so much stuff for me to manage. Um, that it's just like, I mean, like I have like four people working for me now. And it's like, so there's like so many things going on that then to, to step out away from it from like the 30,000 foot perspective and really take a, 
analytical look at like what are you actually doing here and what what are you going to do if you show up this fall and you only have two episodes and they're not very great because they're like mellow lines what are you going to do and you're like oh wait no these people would be still i think everyone would be interested in the reason why we're not going the reason why it's a challenging year the reason why we give ourselves more and more attempts and it just might not happen this year but we're going to just keep going out there and filming and showing people what's going on with these well, you know, as a segue here, if you're ever worried about, you know, maybe not being able to put an episode up on YouTube, you could always try faking an airplane crash <laughs> yes. and uh, get some attention that way. Yes, I could. But I think what this story we're going about to tell you would show you is that is not a good idea in the slightest bit. That was the takeaway of that story. Don't do that. Okay. Bad ideas. I hate this whole thing so much, and but it was a nice segue from where you were just talking. So I did not want to lead with this, but here we are. The floor is yours. What are we talking about here? So this story came to me uh, via DigiDave on uh, Twitter. I saw it and uh, I was like, what is this? So the story goes, there's this video posted um, on YouTube with two and a half million views. And when I watched it, comments were turned off and it said, I crashed my plane. And the story is it as this guy, Trevor Jacob, who lives in Southern California. He's an Olympic snowboard cross competitor, like base jumper, skydiver, um, just, I don't know, one of these guys. And he has a YouTube channel. We post this video of him, you know, taking off saying he's going to fly to Mammoth Lakes and spread some of his ashes of his friend who was a base jumper. And then he goes, uh, and it, he's wearing a, uh, uh, like a skydiving parachute on his backpack. And he's like, and I always fly with my, my parachute. And you're like, really people do that. And then he takes off and then all of a sudden has a mechanical jumps out of his plane, watches his plane go down and then hikes out of the, the woods and gets rescued by some farmer. Um, meanwhile, this is like captured. There's like seven GoPros on his airplane and like all kinds of crazy, just, it was shot like, very well there are shots from above the plane after he has bailed on the plane yes and you're like watching this and i remember thinking at first i'm like is this fake and then you're like sitting there and you're like no way like no one would jump out of their own airplane and then you're like you know maybe it's just a youtuber who's filming everything has seven gopros and attachments to his plane at all times well turns out the internet had the same kind of thoughts I did, which was, is this fake? And there's this whole response video community of pilots out there that dissect this, uh, this plane crash video to a degree. I didn't even know it was possible and try to say like, no, this is fake as shit. Like this guy actually faked a plane crash. He intentionally went out there and jumped out of a plane, like intentionally stalled his aircraft, did not turn it on and jumped off and faked it for the YouTube fame or for, you know, two and a half million views. Uh, so this starts going around and ends up 
uh, to get to the ending point, uh, as of like about a week ago, he had his uh, pilot's license permanently revoked by the FAA because the FAA pretty much agreed with all the YouTube sponsors that this was fake as shit. Um, fascinating story. Like, I definitely suggest people watch the plane crash, the video, see what your thoughts are, and then go watch the response videos. Because to me, this story is just the fact, it just shows like the internet is undefeated and you just, you can't get shit past the internet. There are too many people out there watching and there's too many people that have such an expertise in something like the most basic details to the most intricate details of an airplane that they'll figure out that no, that plane that you just jumped out of was intentionally crashed. So real, real kind of fun, but horrible story. Yeah. I hated this. My favorite and least favorite part of the entire thing is the little like advertisement he does at the beginning of like the video. So I, I don't oh, even the, know. I, yeah, the wallet yeah. thing. You're like, I'm just oh like, my God. Did, <laughs> oh, that was that was so cringe. To me, one of the more interesting things, I had this conversation recently and it's like, I see more and more and I don't know whether it's younger generations or just people of this ilk that aren't necessarily doing things for authentic reasons, always try to mask their intentions with something good. So um, whether, you know, you're doing, you know, you're climbing Mount Everest for a cause or you're doing sudden sun for a cause and you're like, meanwhile, you're kind of like, eh, smells fishy. It sounds like you just want to go do that and then you're justifying it by some good cause. Sometimes it is good and, you know, that's you can't blanket them all as bad. Sometimes they actually, those fundraisers will do positive things, but sometimes they feel just blanketed just to like, show some justification and this video had that too he was like i'm going to go spread the ashes of my friend who died many years ago um that to me was also a red flag you're like i almost like trying to guard his intentions yeah the guy died in 2015 a fellow base jumper so you're like you're just spreading his ashes like it seemed like that was even a clue but all the clues that the airplane guys dug up like the fact like his door was cracked open before the the plane actually engine stopped. You were like, that was like, he was obviously scared of being able to open the plane door before the actual uh, engine shut down. So that was a pretty interesting one. All right. Anything else on this story I hate or can we move on? Yeah, just like, I find it interesting because one being YouTube famous is not all that's cracked up to be. I'm pretty YouTube famous these days. So like the, the chasing fame in this sort of way with this sort of stunt is just so pointless. It just seems so shallow. I, I don't understand it. Like you're not going to become a millionaire off of this. I don't know. I'd rather you try and commit a crime like financial <laughs> fraud that makes you like rich and free than try to be popular on YouTube because you fake crash your plane. Um, the other thing is too, it's interesting. I really think like our generation is like the most last 10 to 15 years is the most advertised to generation. 
our bullshit meter is so attuned because we are fed bullshit on a daily basis. And I think it's so interesting to me that so many people discount that. I think we can smell authenticity versus inauthenticity from miles away. Um, sure, plenty of people still get duped, but like, many, many, many people do not. And that's what ultimately, like, I think was the downfall of this guy is like, assuming that you can pull off bullshit on the internet and show a fake side of you to, to people put on a facade, like people sniff that out. And I feel like it's super naive to think that like you're able to, if you're not honest with yourself, and being dis, then thus being dishonest with your audience, they're going to believe your hype and believe your bullshit. To me, it's just like this guy, like it just, there's a lot of people like him out there. And regardless of this, didn't get his license pulled. I think a lot of people just be like, oh, this guy's a douche. It kind of seems fake and whatnot. Like I, I first watched it. I was like, this kind of weird. This is kind of douchey. Freaking living in LA or Southern California is a terrible actor. Needs to get some acting classes. So um, I just suggest people that out there that are listening, if you do stuff, if you're a content creator, just be honest, be authentic. Don't try and pull dumb shit like this. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you're a little bit YouTube famous. That was my favorite line. I'm going to you have a t-shirt made for you and send it to you. Um, yeah, I got, I got one of those like plaques from YouTube, oh, the like silver ones. Yeah. Okay. okay. You don't that's, need, you don't need my t-shirt then. Yeah, no, that's, I'm that, that's the official document that I'm YouTube famous. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Moving on, happily moving on. I got to say, I quite like this next story. Apparently other people might not like it as much as me, but we can talk about it. John and Ann Doerr have given $1.1 billion to Stanford to create a new school focused on climate change and sustainability. We're actually going to link to an article. There's a lot of articles on this. Uh, There's one in the New York Times that we'll link in our show notes. And honestly, I thought every single paragraph in that Times article was kind of very interesting and worth a conversation sort of paragraph by paragraph. A couple quotes from uh, John Doerr. He says, climate and sustainability is going to be the new computer science. That's a hell of a claim. And I hope he's right about that. He also said, quote, this is what the young people want to work on with their lives for all the right reasons, period. I like this. I know that some people have questions and I think legitimate questions about, right, like giving big amounts of money to some of our wealthiest universities that have some of the biggest endowments out there. I understand that, but I'm sorry, I'm having trouble seeing this as a negative. A couple who has given over a billion dollars to fund serious research on climate change and sustainability. Also, I will note, there was apparently through some matching funds or not matching, but another $590 million on top of this $1.1 billion that is going toward this new program. So that's kind of the outlines of what we have going on here. Thoughts on this, Cody? Yeah, I can say why I don't see it as all positive. Um, 
because personally to me, it's like, are we really relying on the kindness of hearts of billionaires to fix climate change? Because for every three of them, you know, whether it's as much as we back on Jeff Bezos, like who's said he's, as he says in the article, $10 billion towards uh, climate research, as to the other billionaires that have done stuff like this, you're like, well, this is for the global good. Why can't our governments do this? Like, why do we have, why do we have to rely on the, you know, a billionaire who has so much excess money that they're like, ah, we'll give a bunch to as university so they can study this. That to me is like, it's more, I guess, a critique of the system that we are currently living in and not necessarily the act. Because I do think the act is really good. We're going to need to rely on this. I do think what he also says of being that they're like, there almost needs to be incentive for this of saying like when i read it this is like the new computer science he's saying there's a financial incentive for you people to come into this um for young people to do it for multiple reasons because the goodness of your heart only goes so far when your entire system is dictated by and incentivized by financial gain because that's the only way to make it in this world is to have money <laughs> so so to me like yes i i think it is cool and i do i thought the article was really good and i think what he has framing it and saying saying like the working you know it's not just going to be science like stuff like studying policy um studying how they work with governments to make climate change initiatives happen i think is a, a fresh way of looking at it um i think the business side of it is really important too like i have a friend who's a billionaire that should uh shift stopped uh, his VC funding and has shifted only to green tech funding. And he's, you know, trying to make it so that these young companies with big ideas are financially successful so that there's more people drawn into it. And I think that is the only way that we're going to solve climate change. I continually say to people, I'm like, the only time we're not going to have fossil fuels is when burning renewable energy. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but using renewable energy is cheaper and makes your life better than fossil fuels. Then till that point, we're not going to get this solved. And so there has to be some economic incentive to switch over to renewables. So framing what he his giving is doing in that sort of way, both in policy and, and economics, I think is an important way to frame it. Like no one cares to me about saving the world. I mean, no one really cared about putting like saving the world when it came to this last COVID catastrophe. If anything showed me, it was like, we're not going to be able to unite against climate change. The only way they'll do it is if there's enough incentive to, I mean, when people staring death in the face, they'd rather not wear a mask for whatever incentives they had. So um, my only critique is just like, this, this system sucks, man. Like, why, why can't the true powers that be, the governments of the world actually do something about this? And why can't the, the companies that are actively incentivized to destroy the planet when it comes to climate change becoming incentivized to actually reverse their damage. Um, that's, that's my only critique. Um, but that's more of a systematic thing again, than the individual thing. Yeah. And I hear where you're coming from on that. And I sort of agree. And yet maybe the only thing I'd say is there have been, if we just keep this conversation, uh, you know, about the United States, a number of people have made vast fortunes in this system 
And so I yeah. agree with you, Tesla. right? Yeah. So it's at, at a minimum, like, well, we can't snap our fingers and change the system. So I'd rather have stuff like this happening at least. And, and another good quote I thought from Mr. Dorr, he said he hoped that his gift would inspire other wealthy individuals to spend their fortunes combating climate change. His quote, this is going to take more than one institution, Mr. Dorr said. Just like we have multiple medical schools, we need multiple sustainability schools to get the job done. And, and I mean, obviously, we need a lot more than just schools, but... You know, I, I, I'm sorry today. I'm just taking this as a positive, um, you know, and, um, yeah, we can, we can bemoan the current system, but I do think this is inspiring and I hope it does help put us on a path, the kind of path that you've talked to well already, you know, giving the brightest among us, the hungriest among us incentives on many different fronts to go solve some of these massive, massive problems and massive problems at scale. Yeah. No, and, and I agree. And I think if the governments aren't really doing anything, can't agree on anything, can't get anything done, then if this has to be the way, this is probably the best alternative right now is to convince billionaires with outsourced incomes and source of funds to actually invest in saving the planet. Um, actually, and, and that was another realization too. It's not saving the planet. Planet's going to be fine. Saving humanity on this planet. Um, saving a quality of life on this planet that it makes it habitable and enjoyable. Um, you know, I, I've continually, the more I think about things, the more I read about anthropology and whatnot, you know, like we we definitely talk about plastic pollution a lot and the plastics never break down they floating the trash islands that are out there it's really bad and it is really bad we don't want plastics laying around not decomposing um but in the arc of time they actually do decompose we're here for so far a very 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 fraction of a piece of time that this planet has existed and so like thinking it in that sort of way of being like, yeah, plastics eventually, they'll all be gone. If humanity's all gone, then plastics are eventually going to de decompose and they'll be never seen again and, I don't know, form into something else. The same goes for climate change is that like, yeah, the, the climate may change. It might evaporate humanity off the face of the earth, but the earth is going to be fine. So to me, it's like, I don't know, we always think about saving planet earth, but it's saving humanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Save yourself. Hmm. Where do you want to go next? Ooh, um, this really fascinating story that I wish, God, I wish I was like deep in these conversations, um, both sides of the room to figure out what's really going yeah. on. Um, so this, uh, falls into our Blevins category, but Blevins corner, um, the headline is Vale Resorts promises to fight Town of Vale after council condemns parcel plan for affordable housing. And the lead in this story is just so good. The largest resort operator in North America is going to war with its namesake town, which is like, oh, wow. What? <laughs> like, I want to read the rest of this story. So good job, Blevins, on that yeah, lead. Yeah, good job, Chase. <laughs> Um, so to sum it up, um, Vail Resorts was planning to build affordable housing units for their employees. 
uh, so employee housing in a section of Vail. Um, Vail in a town council meeting just shut that down and said that they can seize that property that Vail owns for, you know, essentially because governments can do that. Um, this seems like an outright war for sure. And I have no ideas what side is to blame, what side's the good guy in this, because if each side is just lobbing hand grenades at each other and it does not seem like there's a good guy anywhere. Like on one hand, you think the good guy could be actually Vail. They're planning on spending $17 million to build affordable housing for 165 workers. We've talked about it numerous times here and you did a whole series on it about the crisis of housing. You're like, great, Vail, you're doing a good job. You're building employee housing for your employees. But at the same time, Vail of the town is saying like, saying things like, we've been trying to engage with you for two years on this affordable housing. You have not remotely responded to anything we say where there's alternative locations, building it for a more community good, and have just like all of a sudden thrown this out here. So you're like, well, yeah, well, that sounds bad too. Meanwhile, like, Vale's lobbing grenades to the 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 Vale Town Council saying like the the Vale Town Council um decided to potentially seize this property based on the fact that this is where sheep go to winter. It's a south facing slope on the uh I guess that would be on the north side of the highway. And they this is where the sheep come. And so they're like, you're building it right in sheep territory. Vale saying like, well, you haven't shot down the hundreds of luxury homes, multi-million dollar homes that were built right next to it. So it is just like, I I really, you know, I meant to do it and I kind of want to do it. I'm like, who is the Vale Town Council? Who, like, what, what is going on? What is really the root of this issue? Because this seems like a giant pissing match between each other where both sides have seemingly good reasons for what they're doing um granted i will say like you're like well the the sheep thing you're like yeah we could probably say that about anything and you're like meanwhile there are a bunch of other houses over there that you've approved so like like let them build the houses but then you're also like well Maybe Vale has not engaged at all in saying like, no, we have an alternative site. You just end to be build here. Uh, it's like such a complex issue. But I really, like I said, I just want to be in the meeting rooms to find out what's really going on. Yeah. And I think rather unsatisfyingly for here, this does, we don't have enough information, right? And so this feels like this bizarre he said, she said, and I don't think we're going to come to a conclusion on this. It is... It is definitely frustrating to hear about legit attempts to build affordable housing. Those are being stalled. And when it does look like there might be some redlining involved and like it's the same old not in my backyard thing, you know, oh, yeah. people with expensive homes don't want to live next to affordable housing, you know, and yet like who doesn't love bighorn sheep? Yeah, You know, and so I, I don't know what we do here with this. I would love to see a quick resolution. Uh, we want to, we want sheep to be alive. We want housing to be built. Really, we can't find either another spot or 
get to the bottom if the environmental uh, and sheep concerns are actually legit or not. So there's a lot going on here. Yeah, no, and it's been interesting because I've been involved with uh, uh, kind of affordable housing uh, development that is across the street from me. It's like kitty corners where I live. Like I will start to stare at it. And I've been in gone to town meetings and been very supportive of it. Meanwhile, have neighbors that have, there's one guy that I've grown to just have utter disgust for that is just like, no, we can't do this. And he gives every reason that seems like a good reason besides like, it's going to destroy my property value. Meanwhile, this guy like literally by job and by trade is a property developer. And he's developed this whole entire uh, place within Olympic Valley where the minimum home price is like $2.2 million. So you're like, dude, you're an asshole. You're like, you're a property developer and you're saying no in your backyard. Um, so I've seen that side of it. And you're like, look, most of my friends I grew up and then Tahoe are never going to be able to afford a house. They're getting kicked out of their houses left and right, have no secure housing situation. We need to build this. Screw your property values. Like if it hurts my property values, whatever, we'll have a better community. But of the flip side, I've now seen the local governments do have an original proposal thing that I was like, that looks pretty sweet. It fits like the area. It's kind of built into the forest in a certain way. And then two months later, flip and say like, oh, we we gave the bid to this New York contractor. Here's the new design. It looks straight out of like, I don't know, suburbia. And it's just jacked in with 135 units. And like, it's just like doesn't fit the community in the slightest bit, doesn't even seem desirable. Like you'd want to live there nor want to buy anything there. And you're like the, the local government like hoodwinked everybody. And so you're like, these con- these issues, man, they get so complex. Like overall, I'm still for it because it's just like, whatever, we need units. Um, but yeah, there's so many weird things with it. I've, well, I've just now personally witnessed the power of nimbyism and I feel like there's a lot going on here and it is strong. The power of, of property owners, it just goes real, real far. Speaking of Vail, one more thing I did want to note was in the news, Vail has raised their minimum wage to $20 an hour. And I'm not an economist, but that seems like a positive development. Yeah, no, it seemed like it. Like even uh, one of their harshest antagonists, the social media account Epic Lift Lines, posted like, all right, like we're taking some time off because they were like, good job, Vale. Uh, one of the harshest critics and some of the stuff they did. And um, my question for you is there was a lot of like social media activism. Do you think this that had any effect on it? I'm going to go with yes. Now the only question is what percent? I would say pretty low, I would guess. Like I would be in the like 15%, 20% maybe. Um, I do think social media creates a culture and can create, can shape people's attitudes in the real world. And I could see just a certain amount of people following Epic Lift Lines, following the like meme accounts being like just kind of getting shaped and the conversation around town in lift lines with customer service people becomes more negative because there's so much antagonism that there is a percentage of it that is, you know, in the decision-making room, like a small percentage of it is like, yeah, maybe this will help get some people off our ass a little bit too. We have talked a lot about Vale resorts and episodes of reviewing the news and rightly so it's a it's you can't talk about 
ski industry news without talking about Vail. They've, you know, in a way because of the own, their own success. But I do think it is also our job to point out this just seems like a very positive development, mm-hmm. you know? So happy to see it. I think it will lead to other ski areas, other ski industry related jobs, um, taking note and sort of needing to keep up. It's kind of an applied pressure in a positive direction, I think. Yeah, totally. No, I, I think it's overall a good thing. And I do think, I think more than anything, they realize like they're not able to attract workers. I think that's the bulk of it is the fact that you're like, well, it's insanely unaffordable to live here. Our service literally on hill service isn't as marketed people are upset with long lift lines poor service uh, lack of employees helps um, make those causes worse so ultimately they're like we need to attract more workers and so competitive they offer now competitive wages no i, I think it's a good thing and the fact was people kind of laid off them for a little bit they're like good job Vale. where you want to go next well this is almost like the anti uh, article to that, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, the Colorado Sun also had an article up about Colorado independent ski resorts thriving. And here's some kind of notes from it. Um, so the among a kind of plethora of local ski areas, I can't name them all in Colorado, but it's like Arapaho Basin, Echo Mountain, Loveland, Monarch, and a few others. Um, the article in the Colorado Sun goes into how their income uh, is up 20% year to year. Um, Powderhorn is resort up 42% over 19 to 20. And, and this was the most fascinating thing to me. A Basin although down 40% in visitation since they left Epic Pass is pacing to their best revenue season ever. So that was interesting. And it's interesting for multiple reasons. And I think the first is the fact that like more crowded ski areas isn't necessarily 100% because of mega passes. It's the fact that like Skiing is pretty popular right now. Outdoor sports are popular and independent resorts are offering a competitive product, meaning like a basin saying there's less skiers here, but we're doing better financially. Um, So it's it's pretty I think it's just interesting. This show one, the sport is thriving in a certain way um, and that independent ski areas are actually doing well, too. Um, I think a lot of us would think that like the mega passes are just crushing them, but they're offering a product that is different enough from the mega pass resorts that people want to go there. I have a wildly tangential question to ask you. Okay. <laughs> I'll see if it is even tangential. If it remotely touches. It's not. Okay. No, this okay. is a, this is a full, like, a. so if there's something else to add on this, no, but I think it's just, I, yeah, no, the, nothing else to add other than I think it was kind of cool and to see yeah. that they're doing well. Remember how during football season, we kept <laughs> wanting to talk about <laughs> football and we were like, well, it's usually played outside. So it's kind of an outdoor sport. Yeah, 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 totally. How come we never talk about golf? Oh. Golf is an outdoor sport, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Do yeah. you play golf? I've started to in the last couple of years. Oh my God, do you really? Secretly. I didn't know this. Secretly pretty competitive and kind of secretly, quietly a little bit like into it. Why do people who think of themselves as being sort of outdoors people, and let's say that that often means 
skiers or you mountain bike or you trail run or you kayak or you camp or you backpack. How come we, I don't think very many of us sort of include golfers in that. Why, why don't we do that? Because I think culturally, they're so different. I think it's just such wildly different cultures. Like, because you can't be like, oh, it's an elitist sport. Um, they're bad for the environment. You're like, you know what's bad for the environment is ski areas. <laughs> like, you think about taking up and destroying mountains. You're like, yeah, you can't really, to me, like golf and ski areas are the exact same things, when, especially when it comes to elitism, too. And you're like, well, mountain biking. You're like, dude, your bike's $9,000. Yeah. Like, I could join a country club for that <laughs> price and play golf all all year, like, uh, like actually way less. Like you can, uh, my local course, which is like a muni course, you can get a, a season pass for 500 bucks. I'm like, that sport is way cheaper than going and being a mountain biker. So, but what I've learned from it is culturally, it's just so different than what we do. It's, uh, it's the thing that actually turns me off with it. It's so bro fucking i don't know smack the shit out of the ball and fucking drink beers and smoke stogies and like i don't know culturally it's just it's weird um granted the people i play golf with are not like that we're just out having fun and that's what i actually i reason started playing it was because uh a really close friend of mine long story short kind of drifted apart he came back started playing golf and it was a good excuse to go hang out with him and we kind of end up getting a little posse of like really close friends and we go play golf and it's like two to four hours of hanging out with your buddies and doing some of the bro rush like shit talking and playing you know jokes on each other but like ultimately going out there and just kind of being competitive and getting to hang out with each other and that's what i do like about it. but culturally it's such a different sport than what we do Granted, they probably look at us and be like, you guys are douchebags. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about is all the sports I mentioned have like a very well-respected like dirtbag culture. Yeah. Is there not a dirtbag culture in golf? Like I, I, I sleep in my car and then I only like play public courses or like I, I clearly I don't know anything about golf at all. So, but I'm, I'm just curious. And I thought the differences, because it does to me, there's a reason, like we never talk about golf. I never think of it, but I'm like the, this kind of came up recently. And I was like, wait a minute, it's played outside. You Man. walk around, you, you know, why, where did this divide come in? And it's starting to seem to me like you could have the, like, Let's only play public courses. You found some clubs. You got them for cheap. You hang out with your friends. You're sleeping in a car or a cheap hotel room or wherever you are going to golf. There's a way I think you can do golf as maybe inexpensively as you can be a skier. I mean, you got to work for it way more. I know way more inexpensively. Like I actually, so... In Taos City, there's a the local Muni course, which is a nine-hole course, and that's the one I generally play. It's super cheap, um, and it's fun. Your buddies are out there. It's actually kind of like the community center. The more I've gone there, the more I realize, like, some of these conversations we have with housing, town, you end up playing with people that are really invested in it, it like, live there, and this is just their local kind of place to come hang out. Um, it's like, it's a true community center. 
The other thing I used to think, I'm like, let's rip that out, develop the town better, put the road on the other side, it'll make the town better. And then I realized there's some friends of mine that, you know, very working class in ski ski towns. They can't of their kids cannot afford mountain bikes. They don't afford mountain like you know, they ski, but they just are kind of do normal sports and they live like what we would say is a normal life. They they just can't afford it. The but what I saw is like Tahoe City has these like summer golf programs where your kid can come to the course for like three days a week, play with a team. It's like uh, 250 bucks for the summer and the kids play golf every day. And like to me, I was like, that is really cool. Like, no, actually, I realized I flipped my stance pretty quickly when I started learning about it. Um, just because you're like, wow, this is actually a great community center, things for kids to do at a very cheap price. And we value mountain biking and bike trails and all these other sports going out on boats, but that's actually inaccessible to a ton of people. And golf can be like a really, really good sport for lower income people to actually get into. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's as bad as the the like popular culture that shapes it is. And the more I've learned about it, the more I'm like, oh no, it's actually pretty cool. And for most people that are playing on a muni course, they're just out there hanging out with their friends, get some sunshine, hit a ball around. They don't care what their score is, and they're just kind of having a good time, which I think is cool. Hmm. So I guess at bottom, and again, I told you this was coming out of left field, yeah, but totally. I, I think if the, maybe for me, the most interesting takeaway, and I've been guilty of this definitely myself is, yeah, it's like, yeah, no, of course I don't golf. I ski and I mountain bike, you know, and I do stuff like that. But when you start thinking through the price points of all this stuff, you can't you can't really just hold well, golf's too elitist. Yeah, it's not compared to skiing, mountain biking, anything. It's, it's the same, if not cheaper. All right. Like, yeah, no, I, that's the one thing I realized about it is, isn't as a, it can be elitist. It can be super elitist for sure, but it also cannot be, and it can be a really accessible sport for a lot of people. So, but I think culturally it just isn't as cool of a sport as what the outdoor sports kind of put their image out to. All right. So basically like maybe like 16, 18 months from now, reviewing the news, it's just going to be an NFL football and golf podcast. Totally. Yeah. That, <laughs> I know, that's the... Uh, We're planting the seeds. Yeah. Maybe surf too. I'm, I've, oh, I've got surf. A, I'll, be, I'll be down spending a lot of time in Santa Cruz this summer. So I'm excited about that. So we can talk about surfing too. The okay. three things that our audience just does not give a <laughs> flying fuck about. <laughs> <laughs> It's perfect. Forget giving the people what they want. Yeah. Yeah. Fuel. Yeah. For backcountry skiing. What should we just, what should we say here? I don't know. This was like, so this is, I guess, been a topic on my mind a lot lately and it came up during this traverse. Um, and Wild Snow just put up a post and about fuel for ski touring. Um, and I just like, I've gotten a lot of questions about it and my, like on YouTube, I get a lot of questions of what you're eating and whatnot. And then I've like really over the course of the last three to four years have really started to refine my feel for the backcountry. So it's mainly been on my mind a lot. And I figured it'd be just an interesting conversation. Like what, when you're going ski touring, what are you bringing out there? What's in your backpack for food and water? Like, is it just yeah. water or what? Yeah. What are you doing? Part of the answer to my question is I'm, life is still busy enough for me that I'm very much like a day tourer, mm -hmm. you know, like for better or for worse, that's just, 
that has been the reality of my situation. Well, what's like your vert that you would do on a small day and then on a big day? It's funny. Honestly, in the last couple of years, there's not a whole lot of difference between the small days and the big mm-hmm. days. Yeah. So given we don't need to maybe name zones around here, but if you know CB, like we've got good access to good backcountry skiing. And again, it's, I'm still kind of in a bang for your buck, you know? So honestly, a lot of my days are single lap days. Mm -hmm. So let's say, so let's compare it more in terms of time out, you know, quick day is, you know, two hours out. And then the kind of quote unquote bigger day is six to seven hours out, but like not big. I'm not like not calling that big. So the drink is definitely water. That's honestly all I ever bring. And then I do some, I have a, um, a pretty high threshold for various bars. Uh And so I think my current favorite, I've been liking the cliff bar, the like ones filled with like kind of butter, like peanut, the nut butter. Nut butters. That's the only ones that I see anyone eat these days when it comes to Cliff Bar products. Like I, that's the only ones that I feel like people can stomach anymore. That's kind of my, yeah. So I will usually go out with at least two. And if we're on the bigger end of that day, we maybe go to three or four, mm-hmm. but that's like what I do and keep it, keep it simple. Yeah. And I've been thinking about it a lot because on this traverse, you're like really trying to maximize calorie intake for weight because you're like, how do I bring eight days of food? Or we were, we planned on 10 days. So we had to bring 10 days of food. How do you get as many calories as possible? Because I also get, I get really like, uh, like how it's, it's like food nervous <laughs> apprehension out there when you're like, day three and you're like, I'm running out of food and I'm really tired and I'm bonking and I don't have any food. What do you bring? And so I've been like definitely shifting my strategies over the last, especially this year. Like I can't do bars anymore. They're just, all of them are disgusting. Um, and they, they're just gross. And so I've been doing more (laughs) and more like real food, like try and make a sandwich before I go out there. And then uh, leaning heavily, like one of my favorite things, which I actually think is pretty good, is you take like, a, you know, the um, honey stinger waffles. Mm-hmm. Those things are so tasty, mm-hmm. but you cover yes. them in nut butter, just like squeeze a ton of nut butter on them while you're out there, like a little packet of it. And it's just like absolute power huh. food, I feel like. Huh. Um, and then leaning more and more away from like, I was going the route of one point, uh, like you read about like Killian and ultra runners and they're just going like goos and yeah. goos and blocks and electrolytes. And I realized you're like, yeah, you're not really doing that. We, we, we do such a different threshold than what they do, which is mm-hmm. just full max all time. Yeah. We're like we're trying to enjoy the day. Um, and leaning heavily like on those high calorie, high fat foods. So sausages, hard cheeses. Uh, my favorite is now just making my own like almonds, uh, salted almonds, and then put a bunch of M&Ms in there. And just like that's your trail mix. And it's just like really, really good. You just said making your own salted almonds? Well, no, you, no. It's trail mix. Like, you're trail picking mix. them from no. the tree no. and then pouring sea salt? No, what making are you doing? your own trail mix. Because I also <laughs> okay. don't like a majority. 
majority of the trail mixes out there. So you just like get your nuts that you like okay. and then put in M&Ms to it. But, uh, but yeah, no, the, and one of the key things I've been going towards is macadamia nuts lately. Cause mm. they're so mm-hmm. high fat. Um, yep. so you can only eat, have a handful of them and you're like, Oh, I actually feel pretty good. So, um, uh, it's just been interesting to see what people like, we just were by the end of it, like the, this traverse, I had a bar for every day. And like, I, I think I came back with like four bars, five bars. You're like, I can't eat these anymore. They're <laughs> disgusting. I don't know why they just end up being so gross at some point. Um, you're like, I wish I brought more nuts and M&Ms and more sausages and cheeses. So, um, yeah, I've been like the high calorie, in a condensed package kind of thing is what I've been more and more leaning on. And then I do like the shot blocks, like actually been eating those honey stinger shot blocks, which I think so far are my favorite tasting ones. And those really help like when you're on like the final 2000 foot climb and you just like pop one and go another, you know, a uh, hundred yards and pop another and just keep climbing and kind of like give you that little bit of sugar burst to get up there. So have you gone down the like, electrolyte road i started to yeah and i'm definitely much more heavy into the electrolytes i feel like there's just especially on this trip like when you're limited amount of fuel um we were kind of running out on fuel at one little stretch and so you can only make a certain amount of water because you're melting snow for your water and like you're making like two liters a day at most. And I really, really heavily relied on electrolytes on it. And I feel like the electrolytes go just so much further than just drinking water. So I, that was one kind of realization on this trip is like, yeah, I actually don't have to bring as much water if one of them is filled with electrolytes. Huh. I'm just starting to kind of experiment in that world. I never really have. Yeah. So yeah, for longer mountain bike rides or, you know, I'm actually, Cody, I'm actually running a decent amount right what? now. I know it's crazy. So just kind of experimenting with that a bit. Cause I never really have. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, kind of curious to see if I'm like, wow, this is night and day. And this is now a new, you know, we'll be adding that to the water when it comes to the mountain bike rides and ski touring or just trail running. Yeah. I, I generally find the less sugary, the better too. Um, there's a few brands out there that I've tried and I've been kind of, I've, yeah, I'm starting to really realize the, the, the power of electrolytes. It's I think so much better than drinking just water. Time to talk about what we've been reading and watching. Which is pretty much just going to be a segment of Jonathan talking because all <laughs> I've been reading is the weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've been reading the weather. I do have a couple things on this and a couple of them, like, I feel like, well, you and I are going to talk about them not on this podcast eventually, or maybe we'll bring it full circle because a couple of these shows I do want you to watch. On the reading front, this actually ties back into a story we talked about. I actually started reading a couple weeks ago, like before the news broke about this gift by John and Ann Dorr to Stanford that we talked about, the $1.1 billion gift to Stanford for the Climate and Sustainability School. I started reading a book by this guy who, frankly, I confess I'd never heard of, and it's John Dorr's book. And it's called Speed and Scale. And it is his sort of blueprint for how, in fact, we go about addressing our climate situation. And I'm finding it very, very compelling. 
we're probably going to start doing some things on Blister where I think we're going to have reason to be talking about that book more. And I think it's just a phenomenal, like a phenomenal vision, like one vision for how we might proceed. And which is to say that can be a jumping off point, right? It's not the final answer necessarily. Maybe it is a very good set of steps. It's just been interesting. I've been really, I've been learning a ton. I find it to be a book that I find really inspiring and creating a lot of hope. And the hope part comes from the education, right? As I'm learning more about companies out there today and what they're working on, you know, turns out, right? Like often, you know, removing ignorance can go a long way toward being like, wow, there are smart, capable people and companies working on big scale solutions to this. So I've really enjoyed that. I would really encourage people to check it out. And then what was interesting to me is then like, I, so I started on this book, didn't know who this person was. And then a couple of days ago in the news, it's like, well, he just gave a ginormous gift to Stanford. So Speed and Scale by John Doerr. Cool. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Listeners of Gear 30, specifically the episode I did with Jed Yeiser and McKenna Peterson, will know that we talked about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I am almost done with the book. I had a number of nerds, sorry, all of you nerds, they were very upset with me that I had somehow never read this book before. And I haven't either, and I've been actually trying to, too. So I'm actually... Right now you are? Well, no, like I've been, I tried to download it on Kindle and it wasn't available for huh. uh, a trip. And I was like, what the hell? I've been always wanting to read this book because, yeah, I think you and I are both, we're not closet nerds, we actually are nerds. <laughs> we're pretty so. much, yeah, yeah. yeah no, so. it's, we're, we're, we're out of the closet. <laughs> yeah. So... Been wrapping that up and we are, we are, I've been promising this and I'm sorry, uh, we are going to be relaunching this Blister Book Club. That will be the book we sort of relaunch the Blister Book Club with, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Jed Yeiser will definitely be on that episode. I'm not going to say McKenna will be for sure. She read the book, wasn't totally sure what she thought. So I'm just going to invite McKenna to be on. And I hope she says yes. But anyway, we're going to be talking about that book. And I, and I am very happy to have finally gotten around uh, to to reading this this work. So that those are my two books for the uh, for the time being. Yeah, I literally I was still reading the same book as last time, The Dawn of Everything. And I'm like, I don't think I've picked it up just because it's like every waking moment has not been able to do that. So anything so. I, I yeah. catch up on reading this summer. Okay. So you haven't, you haven't been watching anything either? No, well, I haven't been home and like, it's like usually on the road. And if I'm home, we've been, cause we're up in Canada, uh, we have streaming baseball games a, a little bit, but even at that, like the nights are so hectic with putting our son to bed, making dinner, cleaning up, then go to bed. You know, you just don't, you don't really have the time to sit down and watch a, watch a series. So, yeah. um, I will say you can go. You go second because I want to hear this, so I'm not just silently okay. there. But um, there's one show that I've never mentioned on this podcast and that I think is one of the greatest shows on TV. And that just came out with their third season. Um, it's on HBO and it's Barry. Have you watched Barry? I have. Fuck, yeah. I love that show. 
Um, one, I think Bill Hader is a genius. I uh, love yeah. Bill Hader when it yeah. comes to both his comedy and so many of the movies he is in. He's so good. But that show is really good. And it is really dark. But like, it is the darkest comedy I've ever watched. Like it is I, I balancing as dark a subjects that they do with the like comedy of it is like, I, you know, I, I don't think it's been executed quite like this before. Like, you know, there's funny moments in like Breaking Bad, but it's mainly just a dark drama. Like this thing is like, there's laugh out loud, funny stuff while also like watching this guy be tortured mentally potentially even physically at times like just it's it's pretty pretty crazy show i i think it was one of the better more ex well executed shows out there in the last few years and i i was obsessed with it when it came out i loved loved season one yep and frankly still really loved season two and then they did they were on a hiatus for quite a while yeah since 2019 since it came out so. Yeah, so I'm I'm like I've watched two of the this season's episodes and I think I like I I'm I haven't watched the latest. And it's like good, but there is a funny thing going on. I guess we're talking about media right now, but so maybe this counts as something we're allowed to talk about, but like having that long of a hiatus definitely it's like I don't know, your girlfriend went away for two years and comes back and you don't like, it's like taking a minute. I know. I I almost feel like I need to go back and watch a couple episodes because I do not remember what happened other than just like it being very dark, but the actual plot twist and whatnot, I don't remember. Um, But uh, yeah, no, it's it's, it's too much time off. Yeah. So, but anyway, yeah, in on it and we'll see if... um, you know, I, I guess to continue the metaphor, we'll see if, you know, the relations with the girlfriend start to go back to where they were. Yeah. Wow, this got weird. <laughs> no. Well, there's one, and there's that one episode. I don't know if you remember the, you know how TV does what they call bottle episodes where um, in one episode and one season, they're like, they've gone over their budget. So they decide to do a TV, an episode that's all in one room. And it's like, uh, they're, they're called bottle episodes and every major TV show has one. Uh, Breaking Bad had one that was called, I think, The Fly when they were yeah, stuck. Totally. Stuck in, and that's, yep. that's a bottle episode where they're just in one room. Um, they had one called Ronnie Lily and they're generally in this bottle episodes. They're almost like tangential and they just go into some weird subject. And Ronnie Lily is like one of the funniest and darkest episodes of tv ever and i feel like if you want to watch it you watch that episode because it is so genius in so many ways it was where i don't know it breaks into the house and gets in a fight with a taekwondo master uh it, that episode is just it showed to me it was bill Hader wrote it so it was like yeah that's why it was a, it's genius yeah another quick tangent maybe or it won't be yeah. a quick tangent you brought up breaking bad have we talked at all about better call saul Maybe I love it. I watch. I just. I did watch season five on. Actually, I did watch that. Uh, I downloaded it on my. Don't go. spoil. Do okay. No spoilers. Just. Well, no, I watched season five that came out on Netflix. Season six okay. came out on AMC. I haven't watched the the fine finale. So okay. I watched. Now it's the season before that. Um, I watched that on the plane flight going up to Alaska and back. Um, yeah, Better Call Saul, best like spinoff series ever does not even it's so good 
I I really dislike the name of the show. Yeah. Like I thought that was a stupid name and I just like the Better Call Saul title, like I got it. I see why they did it, but I was like, yeah, I don't care about this. But I mean, a number of like movie critics whose opinion I care about, like love the show. And I have not, I've watched a couple episodes, but like haven't gone down that road. So it's one of those, like, I know intellectually I would probably be all about it. Yeah. And yet I haven't like carved out any time and I'm watching, I'm talking about, you know, we watched Barry and watched some of this other stuff. So I'm, I don't really know what the hang up here is. Yeah. And maybe it is the marketing because I remember when Breaking Bad finished and they're like, better call Saul. You're like, oh, they're just trying to capitalize yeah. on their success. And I, dude, it's a totally different spin. It's just, it's, um, Bob Odenkirk being a genius and the acting in it is so good. Uh, God, I forget her name. The woman that plays Kim Wagsler in the story. She's so good. I think it's a brilliant TV show as a standalone. Like, you know, there's some characters that come in from Baking Bad. It doesn't even matter. It's a really, really good show. I think it's a fascinating dive into one, the lawyer world. Um, really interesting. And then two, it's just a good story about psychology, which was ultimately kind of what Breaking Bad was about. <laughs> okay. Maybe I need to say like this summer at some point, I'm going to try to dive in. Yeah, I would dive. It's worth worth the time, in my opinion. I think it's one of the best shows on TV. We're going to touch briefly on these because you haven't watched any of them. This show, Severance. Yeah, I haven't watched it. It's on Apple TV. You need to check it out because... I couple things I found fascinating about it. It is a slow burn. Mm. And I'm like, I didn't know you could make TV these days that kind of went at this pace mm. and the pace is slow. And there were times in a couple of the first episodes where I was like, seriously, like we don't want to speed this up at all. But I think that there is obviously so much TV out there, right? There's so much TV. There's so many movies that I think a lot of times, say with these multi-season you know, shows like we're talking about, Better Call Saul or whatever, I think a lot of times the producers are like, we better be coming with fireworks real frequently or we're going to lose people's attention in six seconds and they'll be off to the billion other options they have. And um, it almost watching this, I was like, I can't believe that more isn't happening here. Huh. And it's pretty subtly done, but it is a very, I think, inherently interesting kind of plot device. And I'll just leave it at that in case people want to come in truly cold, but this is one I would love for you at some point to watch it. And you might end up being like, that was stupid. I'm not into it. But I actually, like, I would say that I am very intrigued by the ideas they're kind of playing with and trying to work through in it. It's Adam Scott uh, is kind of the lead character, the dude from the uh, Parks and Rec. He's been in a bunch of stuff. I'm grew sorry, I don't my, know what else. Grew up in my hometown. 
Went to a local what? high school and university. Yeah. That's of course he did. He went to Harbor High. Do you play golf with him on no. the public course? No, okay, no, no, I don't. I don't know Adam Scott, but we're like tangentially, I realized they're like, oh, like we probably have friends of friends kind of deal. <laughs> anyway, I want you to watch this at some point. If there are people listening to this who have watched Severance, no spoilers or whatever, you know, in the comments, but like, let us know if you're like, I hate Severance or if you're like, it's the best thing ever. Yeah, I like what they're kind of going for. And I admire like we're not if if you need a bunch of fireworks and explosions going off every six seconds. Well, this isn't for you. And I kind of admire that. I think kind of filmmaking in this day and age. That might be a segue into the, the last thing I want to talk about. Ozark. Which is like the opposite of that. Yeah, dude. And, and like, there are no spoilers here. That show's gone off the rails. There's like, they, they have to have a new freaking calamity every 12 seconds. And I'm like, just shut up and let us enjoy the masterpiece that is Jason Bateman. Yeah, and I kind of agree. Like, I've watched the first part of the last season because it came out in the fall or something like that. And and it started, I'm like, there's been part of me that I'm like, why am I still watching this? Because yeah. you're like, well, because I'm so invested at this point, but it yeah. feels like it's lost yeah. its original thing to it, which it was this slow burn. It was like slow, kind of like this ever-present dread, which I felt like they captured so well where they're sitting in their house in their Ozarks and you pretty much feel like they even designed the house in such a way where there's a lot of glass everywhere and they're walking down a hallway and one side of the hallway is a glass to the outside. You feel like they're going to be killed at any moment, any moment, but they wouldn't happen. And it was all about the like kind of intelligent uh, getting their way out of things and figuring stuff out as opposed to shooting people in the head. And I feel like it's gone a little bit too far in shooting people in the head versus that original kind of matrix of Jason Bateman being a genius, both on camera and I think kind of in as a character in the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, showing him do his things and you know obviously the other characters play in really well but obviously uh jason bateman is amazing in it i'm still like a billion percent team bateman i i he's so amazing to watch in everything and laura linney too is incredible laura linney she is incredible in it for sure but I'm like, by the way, Bateman and Laura Linney are directing. They're like taking turns directing episodes. Hmm. And I'm just like, guys, it's so beautifully shot. You are incredible actors. Do less with the script. Like, give me the script and let me just cut out that plot point, that unnecessary scene. Like, pare it back down. You guys are so good. Like... Let them, if it was filled with mediocre actors, you would need all the calamity going on to sort of hide, you know, that like, yeah, no one here can act. So we just have explosions go off every 12 seconds. Yeah. I'm just like, for, for something that I think for a minute, it, do, it did deserve and sort of maybe still does deserve to be in the conversation with like a Breaking Bad, perhaps a Better yeah. Call Saul. I'm like, you guys put too much ketchup on that burger. 
Yeah. And as it's played out, I agree with you. Like I was really invested into it. Now I'm like a little less and I don't think it belongs in that category. I thought it had a potential to, but I don't think it belongs in that A-list golden age of TV kind of series. Like I think it's like it's got touches of it. And I think that, you know, the character development of of Jason Bateman's character and Laura Linney is really well executed. Um, But other than that, I think it starts it's starting to get a little, I guess maybe it's like mainstream TV, little sitcom-y, little typical kind of drama show where, yeah, just, you know, every episode someone gets shot in the head and you're like, how, like, that was my criticism of Yellowstone. You're like, how this wouldn't happen. There's like 45 dead bodies in this town. Like this just <laughs> eventually, <laughs> no like, one left. yeah, like eventually this would be on the front page of every news in America. The New York Times would be like, there's, they've, like a whole t- half a town has died in the Ozarks. So like the FBI, the freaking everyone would be there just being like, okay, let's, let's cut this out. And that's the part when you start to lose me when it becomes not believable anymore. Anyway, well, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Now, I mean, now it's been what, how long we've we been on an hour and a half and I haven't checked yeah. the weather. So I need to get back to checking the weather. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this has been the best thing and the worst thing that's happened to you in like a couple of months. Yeah, you know, totally. I've, I've kept you from checking the weather, but now you do not know what the weather is. I know. It makes me nervous. <laughs> I, um, yeah, that's uh, the amount of times I check. If, you know, if like someone raided your computer and they're looking at your browser history, they're like, oh my God, you just go from 45 different weather sites and you just do that in a cycle for like every hour. You're like, uh-huh, yeah, read everything. Your rock, your rock star lifestyle. Yeah, so. Yeah. Like YouTube famous. <laughs> that's right, that's right. That's what'll happen if you get YouTube famous. You just, just want to, doom scroll weather websites apparently yeah yeah okay so well that's a weird note to end on but that is where we are going to end i'm happy to have you back you know happy to do this we'll we'll get back on a, a regular schedule and uh i do hope it's another so you're still in pemberton for Couple more weeks? Couple more weeks, yeah. I'm actually taking off tomorrow to hit the road to work on some lines. So um the like I said, the family took off to Tahoe. So I was here waiting for BRNA to drive up and then we're gonna hit the road and try and hit a few more lines. So um I'll be back on the road. All right. Well, be safe out there. Good Thank luck you. out there. Thank you. I hope you not only make a compelling episode, but you get the line too. Uh, thank you. Yeah, the episodes, uh, I am actually proud of the episodes we're making this year. They're definitely, we, we're switching our storytelling a little bit. And so I'm pretty stoked on continuing to evolve the series and whatnot. And yeah, it's, then it's always that much better when you actually check off the line. Yeah, right. Well, cool. Well, much success. And uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Good to talk to you, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from the entire crew here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be talking with you again real soon. Bye, everybody.